Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Master and Commander, the far side of the world. Okay, I'm Sebastian, and I'm here with Andrew. Ahoy there. Ahoy there, matey, and welcome back to the Tentpole Trauma Podcast. Andrew was our guest previously for The Legend of Bagger Vance, and uh, we are gathered here today to discuss a movie I think we both uh, have a lot more fond feelings for, would you say? (laughs) I I, I would have to agree. Uh, (laughs) I know you said I'm the sports guy. This one is kind of maybe a sports movie. Sailing is kind of a sport, but sure. uh, 
I think that's an, an extreme stretch, but <laughs> I mean, this is a, a great movie. I'm very excited to talk about it. I'd say there's definitely some displays of athleticism in the film. So, you know, it's not that big of a stretch. Anyways, we are here to discuss Master and Commander from 2003. Now, I remember when this movie came out, I did not see it in the theater. Um, I was pretty much a Russell Crowe fan at this point. I had been following his career. I was excited when he broke big with a gladiator. And this movie seemed poised to kind of build off the heat of that, put him in another historical epic. And I know they were hoping to launch a franchise starting with this movie. It is based on a series of novels by the author Patrick O'Brien, the Aubrey Maturin series, which is like a 20-book <laughs> series, which uh, I know neither you nor I had the chance to take a look at. Yeah, a, a bit a bit too many books, uh, about 19 too many for, for my reading time. But uh, <laughs> they seem to be good books, and uh, I tried to check one out for my library, and they were all checked out. So people are reading them. They definitely have their fans for sure. I always get them a little mixed up with the Horatio Hornblower series, which is sort yes. of similar. I have no idea if they're actually closely related in terms of time period, but I know they're both sort of nautical thriller series. They both uh, prominently feature uh, Horatio. That's true. They do both feature Horatio, which when I was watching this movie, I was like, is Horatio just a common sailor's name or is that like a title? But uh, I couldn't find anything on the Internet to confirm that. So who knows? All the all the knowledge of Horatio's is long gone. Um, let me ask you this. Um, you didn't see this in the theater, did you? I, I did not, uh, unfortunately, which, which is too bad because I was probably about the same age as the, the midshipmen. Mm -hmm. on the in the movie when this came out but uh i had a teacher in, in i want to say middle school or high school who had a poster from this movie on their wall so it was it was something i was familiar with and kind of knew it as this this other movie that was out there i hadn't seen and of course uh, i remember in the the oscars and i guess this would have been 2004 when return of the king was cleaning up the the awards and that's right master yeah. and commander was nominated for a lot of them but didn't win very many no. unfortunately it did take a three or so which is you know not bad considering but i think yeah in a year that didn't have return of the king in it it probably yeah. would have fared a lot better now let me ask you this are you familiar at all with the director of this film peter weir not really i, I um i know he was uh he got all the acclaim for this movie, and it's a name I've heard before, but uh, no, please fill me in on what I should know him from. Well, I'm actually quite a big fan of him, sort of like a low-key fan. Like, he's not one of those directors that, you know, I get obsessive about or anything, but whenever he makes a movie, it tends to be kind of pretty good. I mean, he directed Witness and Dead Poets Society, okay. The Year of Living Dangerously. I actually like his earlier work. He's an Australian director, and so, you know, his earlier films are Australian films. He has a really haunting movie called Picnic at Hanging Rock that both Jennifer and I are big fans of. It's sort of slightly supernatural. It's based on a real event where a bunch of schoolgirls went off into the outback and disappeared. And nobody really knows why. 
I highly recommend that movie. But honestly, whenever he makes a movie, it tends to be pretty good. I mean, I'm sure there's some movies he's made that aren't so great, but you know, I, I'm a fan. I like him. And this movie only cements my belief that he's an incredibly talented filmmaker. He is retired now, so he's no longer making movies. But uh, yeah, I'm a fan of Peter Weir. Um, have you seen any of those movies that I've mentioned? Uh, Dead Poet Society, for sure. Another yeah. one I was, I remember from school. Yeah, I mean, I like, you kind of went through the list there. Some really good, uh, some good movies I'd heard of, for sure. And uh, this one here, Master and Commander, definitely an unappreciated gem from from the past. Do you like historical epics in general? Yeah, and I'm especially into like Age of Sail kind of stuff. Yeah. My first uh, favorite movie was Muppet Treasure Island. Nice. Which which is probably one of the best Treasure Island adaptations out there. That's all, right. All yeah. respect to, to Disney in the 50s. But uh, I mean, I love Tim Curry. And the, of course, like the Muppets being all these, uh, you know, the, the rogues gallery of sailors and pirates and all that. But later on, I got really into the show Black Sails, which is also a, a Treasure Island kind of spin-off prequel sort of thing. I've always meant to watch that because I'm right there with you. I love Age of Sales movies um, and media. I was telling you before we started, I just read The Terror, which is, you know, sort of close to this in many ways, dealing with British naval officers. So yeah, I and Jennifer and I like to joke that I consider myself a real man of the sea, even though um, I don't do any sort of sailing or uh, anything related to boats, really. But I really like maritime adventures and stuff. I mean, I'm even a fan of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out this year. And I was reading that there was, I guess, a little bitterness that that movie was such a big hit. And this movie didn't, you know, make the kind of money that that movie made. But, you know, they're not really the same thing. <laughs> yeah, well, like Pirates is, it, it's more of like a fun joy ride, whereas this is a bit more of a, a history lesson, which, I mean, I still really appreciate, but I think we're, we might agree that the, the viewing public were, were more interested in a romp with Jack Sparrow than Jack Aubrey. While I agree with you that this movie is somewhat of a history lesson, I think it's a really pretty exciting history lesson. Sure. I mean, I always forget just how exciting this movie is. And when I sit down to watch it again, I've now seen it probably four times. And every time I see it, I like it more than the last time I saw it. So, um, you know, if you're a listener and you're hoping for us to bag on this movie, you're going to be disappointed because, um, we're both, I think, pretty positive on it. I always find something new to key into when I'm watching it. Uh, this time, I do have the Blu-ray, and this time was the first time I got to watch it with um, the surround system that oh, okay. I invested in. And let me mm -hmm. tell you, the sound of like the cannonballs and all of that, where even the like the storm that they're in, is so great. And I, I was really, really impressed by the sound this time. And then. I looked it up and they won the Oscar for sound. So yeah. it makes sense. I mean, it sounds like they did all sorts of really interesting things to recreate, like how the you know, different sounds would be made. So yeah, I highly recommend that if you like this movie, but you haven't checked it out on a really nice sound system, highly recommend doing so. But why don't we get into sort of the opening of this movie? Because I think it kind of starts off with a bang. 
we get this really cool scene where you know we're, we're introduced to the ship what is the ship's name again so the the ship that our heroes are on is the surprise yes and the, the ship they're chasing is the asheron yes so yeah basically this is the story of one ship's pursuit of the other and you know just on a basic bird's eye view of the plot you know it's essentially that's the plot is the surprise is chasing after the asheron the characters we're with are british naval officers and this is set during the napoleonic wars so we're talking about 1805 and the russell crowe character captain aubrey has been tasked with basically taking down this ship that's been causing a lot of havoc that's kind of the plot. And then I think the real emotional through line of the story is his friendship with the ship's surgeon, Stephen Matterin, as played by Paul Bettany. Now, before we sort of get into the opening sequence, like, are you a fan of Mr. Russell Crowe? Uh, sure. Like, uh, I, I don't really have super strong feelings either way. I think he's great in, in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's kind of this tradition now of having Australians play these uh, swashbuckling <laughs> Navy, British Navy guys and Errol Flynn and uh, uh, Mel Gibson in the in the, the bounty. Yeah. But uh, I, I do want to, if we can, just, just rewind a little bit because I know we're going to be really positive. I want to hammer on a few quibbles I do have just because Please, yes. for the sake of balance here. Uh, we get this amazing uh, introduction card where it says April 1805. It says, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands in his way. Oceans are now battlefields. So that's awesome. I love it when blank is now blank. But <laughs> I do have a little, a little nitpick about this idea that Napoleon is master of Europe in 1805. Not to get too, too sidetracked here with our Napoleonic Wars history. No, no, please uh, elucidate. Here we are in 1805. We're in what's called the War of the Third Coalition. So that's Napoleon is fighting the United Kingdom, Austria, Russia, Sicily, Naples, and Sweden. And uh, Napoleon at this time, his uh, Grande Armée is massing in northern France, ready to invade England. That's a, a huge plot point is the the looming invasion of England. So yeah. that's possible. That could happen. But in, in real life, this, this army, shortly after the events of this movie, they would actually end up going east and fighting the Battle of Austerlitz, which was a huge victory for Napoleon. That's probably when the master of Europe can start being thrown around. He still has a few rivals on the board at this point. Right. He hasn't taken them out. We're also before the Battle of Trafalgar, which is where the British would establish naval superiority. That's why the, the Asheron is still out there. We can, we can believe that the French haven't been completely wiped off the board, off the, the oceans. But uh, like they do a really good job at, at condensing all this, these wars, all these conflicts into a few sentences on a title card. I just think you can't say Napoleon's master of Europe in 1805. You got to wait till 1806. So that's the level of, of like nitpicks we have to do for this movie. We're, <laughs> we're debating the the finer points of the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Well, I appreciate the historical context and feel free to chime in whenever uh, such a quibbles arrive because, uh, yeah, I, I'm not completely versed on this time in history so it's uh my opportunity to learn but i do love just the whole setup of this action scene yeah it's so beautifully staged and sort of suspenseful it reminded me in many ways of the opening um to saving private ryan the the 
Normandy sequence because mm-hmm. it's not quite as you know suspenseful as that because in that scene you really know what's going to happen. In this scene, we sort of start with these two midshipmen, really young guys, and that's going to be not a theme but a, an aspect of this movie that there's very young men on this boat. There's old men too, but there's you know children essentially, teenagers. Yeah, yeah, like below fifteen. One of our main characters looks like he he might be 13 or 12 even. Yeah. So um, they're very, very young. And a lot of these guys are young. And, you know, we get these two midshipmen. And I'm not going to know any of these actors' names. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them haven't gone on to big careers as far as I can tell. But they're very, very good in this movie. One of them thinks he sees something in the mist. And he reports it. To his superiors, and this is when we're introduced to uh, Russell Crowe as Jack Aubrey, and I really appreciate the sort of way he's introduced, and I think that just in terms of sort of setting up his character and getting you to like him right away, it does a really good job. We get the shot of him just kind of putting on his belt. It's not like a super heroic shot, but you immediately kind of respect this guy. He seems capable and cool, and he's Russell Crowe at the height of his charismatic powers mm-hmm. with like long blonde hair and he goes up to the deck and you know it's still really foggy and you can't really see and he asks the two guys like you know are you sure and they're like you know yeah we're pretty sure and you know he's basically like okay good job good job boys or whatever you know and so you're like okay like he's not you know he's not dressing them down throughout the movie we're going to see his sort of interaction with a lot of these younger officers and midshipmen or sailors he never treats them poorly he always gives them respect he always listens to what they have to say and i think that's just a really good screenwriting trick to make you like him right away for sure yeah i mean that's one of the things i like most about this movie is the just the good vibes on board. It's it's it reminds me of like being in the Boy Scouts where it's just you and a bunch of other boys and there's yeah. all these cool adults that are around there. No one's cracking the whip at you. No one's yelling. I mean, I guess someone does get whipped, but yes, it's a bad choice of words for this movie. But <laughs> you know, like uh, it's, it's a learning kind of environment, and especially when uh, veterans uh, showing the they're looking at the the. The, the iguanas and gulls and stuff like that. There are some really cool moments of of these men all bonding and these kind of uh, they're put into these father figure roles and and Russell Crowe and and Paul Bettany uh, handle it really well. It makes me it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah, not to use uh, too many ship metaphors, but they really anchor the movie uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. I agree with you, and I think if you're gonna kind of compare this to the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, not that you should or would. Those movies are all about betrayals and, you know, pirates obviously are are people thought of as being of low character. And here we have men of high character, right? Like regardless yeah, of what yeah. you might think of British imperialism and all that kind of stuff, they're presented in a very positive light. Everybody tries to work together. There is a sequence in the middle of the movie where one of them falls into disfavor for superstitious reasons, and that's very sad. But I feel like that's handled with this sort of gravitas that it's not just tossed off. It's like a subplot that I think is resolved like really kind of elegantly, and but sad. 
Yeah. Because they want you to see that this is not an easy life. It's not all fun and games. It's a hard world these guys are in. And um, I mean, I will say if, if we're going to ding the movie on another thing is, you know, diversity is not a uh, watchword of this film. I think we have one black shipman who gets maybe a line of dialogue and mostly disappears into the background. I don't even know if he ends up making it to the end of the movie. Yeah. They're clearly in a, a like a, a servant, uh, like a cook's servant kind of role. Yeah. And, and we only see women at one point when they visit Brazil and they, they come trade with the ship. So it's definitely like just dudes only. And it, it is appropriate for the period. Yes. And you wonder if they were to like redo this, this world, redo this movie or whatever, if that's something they would change. And if that would be good or if it would be bad, because I mean, I mean, I'm all for having there be more representation, but when it's like bending the historical reality, that can be a bit touchy for some people. I think if there's a purpose to it, I'm good with it. But if it's just sort of tokenistic and trying to check boxes for the sake of sacrificing historical accuracy, I'm, I'm less in favor of it. But yeah, we don't get a lot of it in this movie. How do you feel about this opening battle sequence? The ship they are seeking, the Asheron, is essentially waiting for them out there in the fog, and they start firing cannonballs at them. And I think this scene is just a banger it is just a really intense sequence it, it's so cool because you see the lights of the cannons then you hear the bangs and then the cannonballs arrive yeah because like those three things they light and sound and cannonballs they move at different speeds and yeah it's nice to see that represented in a movie it's not uh normally it's it's all everything happening at once but you get this kind of second of fear where the they see the, the ship light up yeah like th this this opening this first 15 minutes or so is just Incredible, because you, you really get a, a, a look at inside the ship as well. Yeah. And you get a, a feel of how this ship has been lived in, how how like these men have, have lives aboard the ship. They have nicknames for the guns they're firing and stuff like yeah. that. Like they've clearly been living in this ship for a long time. It doesn't feel like a, a set. Yeah, I think the verisimilitude of this movie is really high. I mean, obviously, I don't know what it was really like to be on one of these ships back in this time period. I have, you know, been on preserved old ships and taken a look around like old Ironsides. It was parked in Massachusetts for a long time, might still be there. I went on mm -hmm. that for field trips and whatnot. So they actually created like life-size replica. I think they made one or two um, for this movie. So yeah, I mean, the ship feels really authentic and you know the way they've staged this battle seems very well researched like you said with the, the sound and and all of that so yeah i mean i'm just right away i just feel completely you know absorbed into this world yeah the ship they built for this movie is still around it's in san diego forever oh, down there nice. you can visit it at their their maritime museum you mentioned uh, old ironsides uss constitution yep not to get too ahead of ourselves, but the Asheron is supposed to be the Constitution. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like the way they did this, like later on, they're going to pull up like a, a model of the ship and the way it's built with the, this this hard oak that makes it hard to penetrate. Like, yeah, that would have been built out of live oak, which is a type of tree found in the, the southeast of the U.S., those those big oaks you see on, on plantations. Yeah, that's what the, the Constitution was made of. That's what made her so strong. And... Um, 
they changed it for the movie because it's an American movie. They didn't want the Americans to be the bad guys. Yeah, I read is, that. Which is what they, they should have done, is they should have had it be the Constitution and had it, had, had it be this, this big, tough American ship that uh, old Jacques Aubrey has to take down. But they made it the French. The French make uh, good villains, especially with uh, Napoleon as the big bad. Well, and also in 2003, there was that ridiculous sort of moment in America where we were mad at the French for whatever reason. I, f- I can't even remember why. I guess you were mad at them. The Americans were mad at them for not wanting to fight in Iraq. Which That's right. Yeah. They were right about. So yes. <laughs> jokes on us. We called our French fries freedom fries yeah. as revenge. So I'm sure a lot of French people were really hurt by that. Anyways, I think it was just kind of the zeitgeist of the time to make the French the villains. Although I will say, you know, we don't really see the French point of view at all in this movie, except briefly for a tiny minute at the end. And it's not even from their point of view. We're still seeing it from from the British point of view. But we meet some of the remaining crew of the uh, the Asheron. Well, I mean, there's one point where they, they cut to the, the Asheron and the guy's calling out to them to surrender. And you don't even see his face. His, no. his like yelling trumpet is covering his face. So it's almost like... A, like Top Gun Maverick, where totally. they, they completely obscure who the bad guy is just in case. I think that it makes sense for this movie. This movie is about the experience of these men. It isn't even really, in my mind, a war movie. It it feels to me much more just kind of like an adventure and a, a movie about the friendship of these two men, really. And their you know, the relationship they have with the rest of the crew. There is a little bit of talk about, you know, what it means to be, you know, a a naval officer and, and duty is brought up a lot, duty to the British Empire and stuff like that. But it's not the same kind of meditation on war that, say, like a Saving Private Ryan is, even though will get, you know, moments of brutality because of these battles and whatnot. But it's I don't feel like that's what the movie's really examining. We get this amazing battle and, you know, one of the results of this, and, and this is something that I really like about this movie because it'll give you this kind of, you know, epic battle. You'll see all these different parts of the ship. You see, you know, cannonball striking and men getting thrown around, but then it pulls down and sort of focuses on this one midshipman who's this kid. The name of the character is kind of hard to remember. It's um, it's like, I think it's Blakely or Blakeney or something. It's midshipman Lord. William Blakeney, played by Max Perkis, and he's basically injured his arm really badly. And, you know, this actor is a really good young actor. He's a really endearing young man. And, you know, throughout the movie, we're going to get to know him better. But we get this, you know, this scene where, you know, he's, you know, lying in the sort of group of injured and dying and dead men. And he's broken his arm and he's suffering. This is a little bit later, but he's like suffering from gangrene, essentially. And he thinks he's going to die. And he's talking to his friend, who's just maybe a year or two older than him. And he's talking about how they sew up the dead men in these sacks. And he talks about how they leave a gap by their nose just in case they're still alive and they'll start breathing again. And he says to his friend, like, make sure they leave a, a gap for my nose. So, you know, you're watching this and, you know, as a, as a seasoned moviegoer, you're like, 
okay, this means this kid is going to die, right? But interestingly, no, he does not die. He does get his arm amputated. And, you know, I can appreciate any movie that dares to amputate the, the arm of a child. But it's just a really effective way of sort of showing you the cost of this. Yeah. But also introducing you to a character that you're going to come to really care about. And it's what I appreciate about this movie. I think the strength of this movie is that it can then focus in on the, just the real human story. Yeah, I, think, I feel like it was very brave to to cast these actors appropriately aged based on like the historical role of, of a midshipman. Like yeah, definitely. the midshipmen were, were like kind of officers in training. And they were often like pulled from the the aristocracy or the sons of other other merchantmen. So yeah, a bit of like a nepo baby thing going on. But like yeah. it's such brutal, crappy work. And, and yeah, for this movie to like have a child have his arm amputated and then go and like lead the the charge in the battle at the end of the movie, like that's ballsy. I feel like a, 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 a nowadays they would uh, age these these characters up to make them more. Uh, I don't know to have that be more palatable for uh, for an audience. Maybe you get uh, the guys from Saltburn or uh, right. Chalamet <laughs> or something in there, like some totally. some hot twenty something year old actor who everyone knows. But instead, like no, we have some some unknown kids, and uh, it, it definitely like yeah, it gives you a sense of 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 the world they're they're living in, and it also adds to the the tension that you you feel between the crew and the officers because a lot of these men are. Uh, you know, they don't want to take orders from a 13-year-old, but there they are. Yeah, and that will sort of come into play later. Um, just quickly on the cast, as you're saying, you know, a lot of these actors are not people that I recognize. But there were two other British actors that I recognize. James Darcy is pretty prominent mm -hmm. as the first lieutenant Pullings. Then there's also uh, Hobbit Billy Boyd. Is yeah, Pippin. The Coxswain Barrett Bonden. He doesn't really get a lot to do so he's mostly in the background i mean other characters get a lot more focus than he does i think it was just probably because lord of the rings hadn't become the phenomenon it had by the time this movie was being made so they yeah. probably didn't know they had a star on their hands although i don't know billy boyd hasn't done too much since lord of the rings so <laughs> it was a short flight for him from uh New Zealand to the Galapagos for this movie. Yeah, I also, I do appreciate the sort of setting of this movie. I love that the Galapagos are going to play such a big mm -hmm. part of it. I mean, they're off the coast of South America, right? Way off the coast. They're basically in the middle of the ocean. I appreciate that it's kind of almost more of a tropical setting for the movie. But anyway, do you have anything to say about this kind of opening segment before we move on? No, I just think it's very wholesome, the, the positive kind of male bonding that we see. I know that's that's a big part of why this movie has kind of had a renaissance, is it's this positive depiction of masculinity, like all yes. these men together, but they're they're not uh, fighting all the time. They're not being all disgusting. Like, no, right. it's, a, it's a nice, uh, wholesome environment, despite the the war and stuff. It's interesting. One moment of the movie that I wasn't really sure how to read. I mean, I have sort of my theories, but you mentioned briefly, we do see them trading with some locals at one point, And there are some women in the group of people that they're trading with. And we just get this sort of shot of Aubrey kind of looking at one woman who's particularly pretty. 
and he doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything about it. And it's just, they sort of exchange looks and you sort of sense there's just kind of a passing attraction there, but the camera sort of lingers on him and he's got this kind of like almost confused look on his face. Did you notice this shot? No, but we, we know nothing about his, his home life, what he would have been like back in England or whatever. And of course, out on the, the water, there's no, there's no room to have a wife on board. So I believe at one point we see him writing a letter to somebody with a woman's name, but that's about it. It's really mm-hmm. brief. It's really, these are the only hints we get as to, you know, his possible marriage or betrothment or whatever. His life at, at home. Yeah. You really don't know anything about him. You don't really know much about the uh, modern character either. I mean, we don't really hear about a wife at home for him, I don't think, or anything like that. So we're just with these guys in this moment in time, and that's kind of it. Throughout the movie, we get a bunch of different scenes where, you know, basically, you know, the captain is hosting a a meal. You know, this was the sort of thing that occurred regularly on these types of ships. You know, it was considered a high honor if you were to sit at the captain's table. So a few different times we see these meals. There's sort of different people there, depending on who's been doing a notable job lately or whatever. But um, I do love the weevil joke. I mean, it's such a dad joke, (laughs) but it's pretty great. Basically, Aubrey is teasing Moderin, who is a, a naturalist and has a fascination with wildlife and bugs and all sorts of animals. And he points out a couple of weevils, which are tiny little worms, um, sort of crawling around by uh, Moderin's potato. And he says, choose between those two weevils. And, you know, Moderin deliberates over it and like measures one. And he's like, he chooses the bigger one. And Aubrey's like, no, you've made the wrong choice. You must always choose from the lesser of two weevils. <laughs> and that's supposed to be a big part of the books as well, or these, these puns that he likes to bring out. So maybe something you should check out if you like this part. I believe when I watched it with Jennifer, um, she thought that was hilarious. Uh, so she loves a good pun. I, you know, I groan at most puns, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I think that one's pretty freaking hilarious. I mean, and the way they play it, like all yeah. the other men burst out laughing and it's, you know, it's all just, they're, they're just giving Moderin a hard time and having fun and drinking. So, but it does come back later in the movie, uh, in a more poignant way. So I appreciated that they did that. How do you feel about this bromance between Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany? Oh, it's great. Like, uh, it, I mean, it's the heart of the movie. And like I said, it's this kind of positive masculinity, like, He's a tough war guy, but he hangs out with his his naturalist buddy, and and he's kind of there to be his conscience, and he's there to speak up for the crew, which wasn't really something that that happened on a navy ship. It, it would have happened on a pirate ship with the, the quartermaster, but yeah, you know the navy it's much more strict, and so to get that kind of someone who's there to speak for the crew, someone who's there to speak for the wider world, and not just be there for for death and destruction, even if he gets shut down whenever he's he's advocating for what he's advocating for it's still nice to see this kind of back and forth between them 
one motif that I really love that they use is they play music together. Mm-hmm. The uh, Paul Bettany character is a cellist and Aubrey plays the violin. And, you know, after dinner and a few drinks, they'll sort of retire to his cabin in the front of the ship and play music. And, you know, comically, the the cook who's sort of stationed right next to that cabin while they're cooking, you know, complains about the screeching of strings or whatever. Mm-hmm. But really, in the movie, their their music is really beautiful. And they, and they do cool stuff like they'll pluck at the instruments and they, they the music they play, I'm sure, is well-researched and sort of a combination of classical with some sort of maritime sort of, you know, uh, shanty-ish type songs. But I really appreciate that. I think that's a very elegant and beautiful way to visualize their friendship. Yeah, I think that's something that comes from the book series as well, is, is this, this love of music they both share, which, yeah, it does make them seem so much more human. So, yeah, the plot basically is going to revolve around the chase after this superior ship and the sort of push and pull that that causes between Aubrey and Moderin as well as with the rest of the crew. The surprise has been really badly damaged by this first battle. They've basically gotten their asses handed to them. And the rest of the crew wants to go at least to some port and repair themselves. But Aubrey knows that if they do that, they're going to basically lose the ship because the ship is much faster than them. So he basically makes them repair the ship out in the water, which I'm sure is not an easy thing to do. But, you know, he inspires such loyalty with the crew that they're they're willing to, to go along with it. They have another confrontation with the ship and you know they're really not in any position to to fight back so what they do is it's they evade them as long as they can until nightfall and then they do this really clever trick which i guess is taken from one of the books but not this book where they essentially make a raft with a sail on it and put a light on the raft that looks like the light that you see at the um, stern of the ship when it's moving away and, you know, one of these midshipmen gets sent out on it. And, you know, it seems like this really dangerous mission. Yeah. He's basically got a rope tied around him that they're going to pull him off of this thing, you know, once they've set it out into the water. And, and basically it acts as a decoy and draws the attention of the Asheron away from them. But they're like firing cannonballs at it and stuff. And this midshipman is pulled through the water. But I love when... Uh, Aubrey pulls the midshipman back on the ship and he's like, admit it. That was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. One, another one of these scenes that um, this is inspired by a, a real historical figure, uh, Thomas Cochran, the sea wolf, as he was known. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, just like a, a military uh, British naval badass who won all kinds of, of battles against the odds. And yeah, he was he, he invented this kind of trick of faking out the other ship by by leaving a, a light on a, a raft and then having the ship follow the raft. And uh, yeah, like it's it, one of those scenes where you, you really, you, you root for, for our guy, uh, Jack Aubrey, because he's able to to escape these ways without having anyone get hurt. He's outfoxing the, the French. Yeah, and he's going to pull one of those in the sort of climax of the movie. He basically figures out a way to disguise their ship as a whaling ship because the uh, Asheron has been targeting whalers. 
So they basically make themselves bait for the Asheron and they you know, take off of their uniforms and sort of grubby themselves up and disguise themselves as whalers. And that gives them the advantage of surprise, to uh, quote their own name. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, so I love all that kind of stuff. I love like the clever maritime tricks that they're doing and stuff like that. I love the shots of, there's there's four or five of them throughout the movie where where Jack Aubrey will be standing on the ship and he'll be holding onto the rigging and he'll be like facing out in front and watching the ship sail. And uh, there'll be a great helicopter shot of like, coming up to the ship and you'll see him and he'll go past him and you'll see what he's seeing. There's yeah. like three or four of these shots and they're all very good and they all kind of establish the the scene. And it's no wonder this movie won the, the Academy Award for Best Cinematography because like here we are talking about 20 years later. I love that stuff too. I mean, it, it's great because clearly... Russell Crowe went up into the top sails and yeah. stood there because it's really him. I mean, to uh, Kevin Costner's credit, he also did a similar thing in Waterworld. There's helicopter shots of him standing high in the rigging of his ship and that. Although the rigging of his ship is not as high as the rigging of this ship. So uh, Russell gets a little more props. Also, no one drinks their pee in this movie, which is a, a, I give it a mark for. <laughs> Not that you know of, anyway. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the Galapagos situation. Sure. They're following the Asheron, and we should say that the Asheron is a privateer ship, meaning that it's not technically the French Navy. It's like it's a heavy frigate ship, for one. But like, yeah, like a privateer, they're like commissioned ships, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Like, they have to give a portion of their treasure to the the crown mm -hmm. but as long as they attack who the crown says to attack they can attack whoever they want so right it's a pretty good deal for uh for sailors back then because if you were on a navy ship you just got your salary but if you were on a privateer ship or a pirate ship you could get a share of the of the loot which was a lot more than the salary so they're kind of like pirates that are sanctioned by governments in a way pretty much it, it would be like if if the government didn't have a navy and so it just had people with their boats be the navy they're mercenaries in essence yeah so yeah they end up at the galapagos the ship surgeon uh, matarin is you know also a naturalist as we said and you know at this point in history the galapagos were virtually unexplored right i mean I don't think anybody had spent any serious time there. Yeah, I, this might be another historical issue because they know enough about them to to make a dessert of, of them. Yeah. At one point, <laughs> and they make a, a dessert shape like the Galapagos, and he right. names the different islands and rocks. Yes. But this is pre-Darwin, so they hadn't been, like, thoroughly explored. And, and yeah, like, they do a lot of, uh, there's a lot of nature talk, which I love. I love the parts where they're, basically doing a nature documentary from the boat and they're pointing out all the new species they're finding. I find it very affecting because we're in the heart of the story, but we're also in the heart of this friendship between these two men. The surgeon, modern character, really wants the opportunity to go onto the island and, you know, explore the unique flora and fauna and document it. You know, he has notebooks and he, he wants to catalog all the different creatures that he sees. I mean, 
there's a fun scene where they arrive at the islands and this, you know, this midshipman who's lost his arm has sort of formed a friendship with the doctor. He also has an interest in, in naturalism. So they're both sort of looking through their telescopes and pointing out things. And the, the midshipman points out that these, you know, there's these lizards that are actually swimming, which is highly unusual. Mm -hmm. The modern character is very excited to go on to the land, but as good drama often does, a complication and arrives and they actually run into some um, whalers who have been attacked by the Asheron, the Albatross, their ship. And they had just been attacked. They've seen where the Asheron has gone. So Aubrey is like, nope, we got to go. You know, we've got to go chase after them, even though he's promised his friend that he would have time to explore and so they have this heated exchange between them which i thought was just a beautifully acted scene from both of these actors where you see both points of view i mean you know yeah. there's a there's a little bit of ahab and aubrey like and and modern points it out that i think aubrey even says like at this point he doesn't really have to chase them like he's chased them as far as he's obligated to by the crown, but you know, he can't let go of this as you know, every good ship captain must not let go of their quest, you know? So, you know, he's, he wants to keep after these, this ship, even though they're, they're hopelessly outgunned and all of that in moderns, like, you know, you're basically like, you know, you're kind of losing your shit over this essentially, yeah. But you, you definitely see both points. And, but I really just like the way that Aubrey handles it because, you know, Monterin is being insubordinate. You know, I mean, this is probably the sort of thing that somebody could get clapped in irons for doing. I mean, you don't yell at the captain and tell him what he can and cannot do. But I just feel that the way they handle this very intense exchange is, is very elegant and feels like a real friendship. Yeah, and he's not afraid to, like, speak truth to power, I guess the, the saying is. Because, like, he, he talks about how the men aboard the Surprise, the ship they're on, a lot of them are, they're involuntarily there. They're, they were pressed into service. And, and, like, this is how the British Navy did it back then, is they basically kidnapped people and and made them serve aboard their boats. So he, he's at least, like, acknowledging, like, like you should you know, not completely take these guys for granted because they could very easily decide to have a little mutiny and yeah. whose side would I be on there? Like, right. If it's dying or staying alive. I'm probably going to join the mutiny, but yeah, like uh, you're right in that it's, it's like, it does feel like a real friendship. And I, and I just appreciate that someone is there to, to kind of be the, the voice of reason or the voice of the crew or the voice of, science discovering new uh flightless birds and stuff like that like it's not just a war movie there is like a, a conscience element to it as well when what i appreciate about this is sort of the subtle way i feel that the movie makes its commentary on maybe who's right and who's wrong because basically after this the ship ends up in dead water which is when there's no wind and you know like rhyme of the ancient mariner is a very famous poem about uh shipmen that are caught in dead water and you know the horror that can sort of ensue 
when you're stuck in this sort of situation. I mean, this is usually where mutinies form. And of course, superstition starts to take hold of the sailors as it does here. They basically decide that um, one of the crewmen, one of the midshipmen is bad luck because, you know, there was a scene that we hadn't mentioned earlier where um, they were in a terrible storm and one of their masts fell over and one of the other midshipmen who was popular in the crew fell overboard. He was swimming towards the wreckage of the sail, which was still tethered to the ship, but that was dragging the ship over to capsize so they basically had to cut the ropes and this midshipman ends up drowning so for whatever reason because superstition is taking hold these midshipmen are blaming the head of their midshipman i don't know what he's called mr holland is his name and yeah like he's at one point like he has this little meeting with uh with captain at aubrey and he's says he's 30 which is I mean, twice the age of some of the other midshipmen. He's he's failed the the test to advance twice. So yes, you kind of get the impression that he's. I mean, obviously he's not respected by the by the crew who are yeah. of a lower station than him. But even like the other midshipmen have, they've all passed him by, in their their, their the course of of their service. And uh, yeah, so he's kind of like a like a, a sad sack and he's at one point he he tries to sing along with the crew and they're singing their sea shanties and they all stop and they all look at him and say like like what are you doing like i'm supposed to sing with us right and so he, he is like a, a tragic character and uh yeah it's it's sad what happens to him but i also find it psychologically sort of honest like i've yeah. have been in situations there's always somebody who sort of gets the brunt of everything right like there's always somebody that sort of blamed for things going wrong and i just felt a lot for this character like he clearly just probably wasn't cut out for this service you know like he's just not quite up to snuff with this kind of life and aubrey even says like you know you're a decent enough sailor you've just got to basically you know, get the men in line and, and be more assertive, but he's clearly just not cut out for that sort of thing and they don't respect him. And so, yeah, he comes out onto the deck and um, our one-armed midshipman is there who is one of the only people that's nice to this guy. And this midshipman basically picks up a cannonball and throws himself overboard and sinks into the sea. And, and he's doing this not just because he's being bullied, but because he actually kind of believes he's yeah. a bad omen. He He's the albatross and stuff, which I'm sure if you were in this situation and you were the one being singled out this way and bad things were happening, you'd probably feel that it was true, you know, and it's heartbreaking, but I feel it's so psychologically honest. And then again, like I said, I feel like the movie sort of makes subtle commentary on this where, you know, they, they hold a, a service for him. And, you know, during the service, Aubrey, you know, without directly sort of dressing the men down, basically tells them that they're, they should feel sorry about this. And then as soon as he says that, the wind starts up again. And it's, it's like, maybe he really was bad luck. <laughs> yeah. The ship's wind, as it always does, it comes back at the most opportune time for the story. Yes. But uh, 
it, it, it is sad. I see a little bit of myself in Mr. Hollum where he just wants to be friends with everyone and he's, he's just in the wrong in the wrong line of work. I think we've all been Mr. Hollum in some yeah. sort of social situation. I had a very bad summer at camp one year where I was basically Mr. Hollum. So we've all been there at some point in our lives. And yeah, it sucks. And I'll point out uh, this actor was Stan Shunpike in Harry Potter 3. Oh, okay. I did not catch a that. Nice uh, crossover with uh, a lot of uh, Game of Thrones, a lot of uh, like uh, Pippin from Lord of the Rings. If, if you like a series or show or whatever from this time period, there's probably someone from in the crew who has done double duty for another show. Yeah, I had to assume there were Game of Thrones alum in there, yeah. but I didn't immediately recognize any of them. Yeah, the, uh, the guy who is like the sales expert, he is uh, Craster from, from Game oh, of Thrones. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you like British actors, this is a great place to go. Yep. So yeah, then what happens after this is there's an actual albatross sort of circling the ship. And one of the guys is trying to shoot it down, which if you've read the Coleridge poem, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, you don't shoot the friggin' (laughs) albatross. Like, it's never a good idea to shoot at the albatross. But anyway, he tries to shoot at this albatross and he ends up wounding the doctor, which, you know, really sucks for them because he's the only one on the ship that basically knows how to perform surgeries. This part of the movie, I even, you know, having seen it like four times, gets me in the feels. I get choked up when uh, Aubrey turns the ship around and brings them back to the Galapagos because the only other guy that has any sort of medical experience doesn't really know what to do. And it's really hard to conduct a surgery with the ship moving. So they need to go back to, to dry land. And so they take... Paul Bettany back to the Galapagos, you know, essentially losing their chase of the Asheron, like sacrificing the chase ostensibly. So they take him back to the Galapagos so that he can perform surgery on himself, yeah. which is quite a scene. <laughs> yeah. and, and there is a, a humorous scene of the ship's cook who is being pressed into the, uh, the doctor job. Oh, is it the cook? I just yeah. have to read over the doctor's books to look at some pictures and, yeah, <laughs> uh, it doesn't go over well. And then he's he's like having a, a drink to calm the nerves while the ship's rolling. And that's another thing is is throughout the movie, the ship is constantly like pitching and rolling side to side. Yeah. And you usually don't notice it because it's 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 just always happening. But there are a couple moments where it, it, it pitches and rolls a bit more than usual. And that's one of those moments when the they're asking to to go to dry land so you can do the surgery. Because it's it's like I gotta do surgery and he's he's slipping side to side. But uh, yeah, they go back and there's a really nice shot of uh, Paul Bettany wakes up and is he's being stretchered on onto the land and he sees uh, his friend in his big his big captain's hat. Lots of great hats in this in this movie. If you're a fan of hats, pretty much everyone is always wearing a hat. I am a fan of hats and I really wish that somebody would start wearing those like tri-cornery style mm-hmm. hats i mean i all the costuming and everything is really great it all feels very authentic there's nothing about this movie that feels inauthentic to me at all like there's never a moment where i'm like eh, not quite buying that are there any moments like that for you well i mentioned the thing with the uss constitution yeah how they're basically describing that boat 
but they're talking about like a, a fictional French boat. It doesn't really make sense that the French would have a ship made in Boston. I mean, these are super history nerd things that, I mean, I had to go look up to find historical inaccuracies. So right. yeah, like on first watch, not knowing any better. Yeah. Like there's nothing really that, that I feel is, is out of place or, or inaccurate. Yeah. Not, not even really in the sense of like, oh, this feels too movie like or anything. I mm-hmm. mean, I think there was maybe one shot that I noticed where I thought maybe they were using like a green screen, but even like most of the shots when they're on the deck don't look like they're green screen. I know they shot a lot of this in a, in a big tank, you know, like a a giant tank. I think the same one that they shot Titanic in actually for the storm, for instance, they, you know, composited a storm over footage that they shot in the tank and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it all looks really seamlessly real. There's never a moment in it where I'm like, Oh, that looks like special effects or, or anything. Honestly, I'm, I'm buying into the realism virtually every frame of the movie. I do appreciate the surgery scene. It's basically they're in a tent. The cook is going to try initially to do the surgery. What he has to do is he needs to essentially retrieve the musket bullet that's been fired into him. And not only that, there's a bit of his shirt that came off in the musket bullet and they have to get that out or it's going to fester. But Paul Bettany's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do this on my own. So one guy holds a mirror in front of him. The cook basically operates as like the, you know, assistant to like give him the instruments that he needs. And then you have um, Aubrey there to swab up the blood. Yeah. <laughs> kind of grisly as a surgery uh, scene should be. Not gratuitously, though. I, I would say there's nothing in this movie that is gratuitously gory. Right. Like it's PG-13. Is it? I, I don't okay. know. But I, I do feel there are quite a few scenes that could be a lot more grisly that aren't, like the amputation scene. I yeah. think is, it kind of more shows his face, and yes. and like the the stick he has to bite onto, and he pulls the stick out, and there's a big old tooth mark in there because that really hurt. But also like the lashing scene, it just shows again like it shows the guy's back a couple times, but it doesn't yeah. really linger on it. And then yeah, in this scene as well, it's more about the characters watching this happen than giving you like a grisly gross view of the the blood and all that yeah and you know and rodney would probably be really mad at me for saying this but like i don't know i in this movie i appreciate the lack of it honestly and i love horror movies i can be a gore hound on occasion but i don't know i don't want it in this movie like and a lot of times i think that war movies can kind of air on the side of gore because they want you to really feel the you know the visceral impact of it i mean you know saving private ryan is quite gory at parts and it's appropriate there it's just i don't know for whatever reason i don't need it here i'm not like oh i wish i could hear the bone saw cutting through his arm or whatever i feel it pulls back just enough and i'm fine with what we see i mean we do get to see the wound in the mirror reflection when he's trying to fish out the musket bullet and all that so Rodney, the gorehound, probably would be unhappy with what he's getting, but I'm not. Yeah, I think they made a good call, especially when there's, like, children involved. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would point you to Black Sails if you want more of the kind of pirate-era gritty stuff that has a bit more uh, a bit more of the gore. Paul Bettany is on the mend, and um, his young friend has 
been cataloging some of the wildlife on the island for him earlier in the movie after Paul Bettany's character was denied going to the island. There's a nice scene between them where this young midshipman presents him with a beetle that came on board and he's like, see, if you had gone on the island, you wouldn't have seen this beetle. And it's a special you know, beetle that's never been cataloged before. So he's doing more of that kind of stuff. And Paul Bettany is, despite being still quite wounded, he wants to get up and explore. And so he, um, this young midshipman with one arm and this sort of bigger guy who sort of serves as like muscle, essentially, I'm not quite sure what his role is. Yeah. Like at some point, this character almost seems like maybe they're intellectually disabled or something. And yeah. it's like along to like carry the bags. But uh I like that they bring this character on too. He's never given any sort of backstory, so we don't really know what his deal is, but he's there. And so, yeah, they go on this crazy hike across the island and, you know, the midshipman's like, oh, we should go back now after they've gone to several places and seen, you know, they've, they're collecting like lizards into little wooden cages and all sorts of wildlife samples. But Paul Bettany wants to keep going. And in a great, dramatic turn at one point he chases this bird up to the top of a hill and he gets to the top of the hill and he looks down and the asheron is actually in the bay below on the other side of the island it's just like a perfect sort of dramatic you know moment of like well i got what i wanted I can't now in good faith not yeah. get back and tell my friend that we found what he's been after. And so, yeah, they have to go back to the ship and they have to give up the wildlife samples because Paul Bettany's still wounded and he can't really keep up. So he has to be carried. So he sacrifices, you know, the few things that he's gathered. But he also opens the cages so they can all get out. They can all be immediately picked off by predators but, yeah. <laughs> uh, don't think about that yeah yeah no, i like this part too it, it is nice that he the uh he lets the animals go and there's i i think there's a really kind of funny scene a couple shots of them trying to pick up the lizards and the lizards are are like running away and they're like oh just go reach and pick them up he has a big net yeah the light-hearted moments in this movie are also i think really good like mm -hmm. it never veers into anything too silly but there's definitely humor in there and you know the Aubrey character is pretty jovial, a guy in general, and there's a lot of laughing and good humor to be had in the movie. Yeah, so now we're basically in our final confrontation. They set out after the Asheron, and this is where they do the whole thing that I was talking about, where they disguise themselves as whalers to get the sneak attack. How did you feel about this whole setup? It's great. I like to see uh, another clever trick from from Jack Aubrey, and he ties it to the nature. Yeah, I love stuff. that. He says like we're 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 gonna camouflage ourselves. He doesn't say camouflage, but he talks about how like. We're going we're gonna to make them look like something we're not and lure them in close. It's a great movie moment because the yeah. one specimen that um, Moderin has been able to get back on the ship. Right, right, right. The stick bug. The stick bug. It, Aubrey walks in and sort of is like, you know, I'm sorry that you didn't get to get your animals. And, uh, you know, and Moderin's like, well, we did get one. And he shows him the stick. And Aubrey's like, it's a stick. And he's like, no, look closely. And he sees that it's a bug that's disguised himself on the stick. And then it's a eureka moment of like, 
oh, I have an idea now what we're going to do. It's very movie writing, but it's good. Yeah. And I mean, he even <laughs> says like, oh, it looks like naturalism's going to have something to teach naval warfare or whatever. There's some sort of line where he basically puts a fine point on it. Yeah, and we get some really good scenes of them like preparing to uh, to be whalers and they're discarding their uh, their old costumes. And at one point he says like, no sirs, no bells, no you know, whatever. And they all go, yes, sir. And so it's, it gives them a look like, come on, guys. Like, yeah, it's going to take us a while <laughs> to get these new rules. But uh, yeah, like you love to see them being clever, not just because uh, they don't have the advantage of, of guns or men. So they have to use their brains to overcome the, 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 the size uh, discrepancy. And it works. And uh, seeing them kind of slum it uh, as dressed as in these kind of shabby whaler clothes is a, a fun change after they've been wearing their fancy officer garb. Yeah. And who doesn't love this kind of setup in like a war movie where the underdogs figure out some clever ploy to gain the advantage on the much more powerful foe? By disguising themselves as whalers, they've drawn the Asheron close because the Asheron which I'm not entirely clear on. Is the Asheron going to just basically essentially pirate their ship? He says they intend to take them as a prize, which means they want to take the ship as right. a, to, to take the ship whole and to give it back to the French. So, yeah. And then I guess presumably kill all of the people on board or take them prisoner. Yeah. Probably keep, take them prisoner. But if they have to do some killing, they they probably could do that too. So the surprise gets right alongside the Asheron and they fire their cannons and they pull their sneak attack. Blasting them with the cannons is sort of the first salvo because um, they need to be close. They figured out, um, you know, that the, the hull of the ship is like basically two ply hull as, you know, as demonstrated in a model made by a couple of the crew earlier in the movie. So, yeah, that allows them to actually, you know, cause damage to the uh, Asheron. They're able to pull close and aboard the ship and launch a attack with uh, muskets and sabers, which, like, I love that kind of fighting. I mean... Pretty brutal by PG-13 standards, but you don't see a lot of blood or gore. But I mean, I just love the pairing of muskets and sabers in terms of fighting. Like, I think that's a really underutilized sort of melee style because yeah. you only get one shot with the muskets, right? So right. you're basically coming two-fisted right you've got your saber in one hand your musket pistol or whatever in the other you can shoot it like one person and then you've got to go in swinging obviously not very efficient by today's standards but i like the the fact that you've got to kind of be the master of two different sort of weapons at once uh, and and you have to really like pick your shot so to speak because you only have yeah. one and there's like one point where we see a character who's kind of hiding and then they, they finally come out and they, they shoot someone and it, they kill a guy, but they had been waiting to like get that right shot in perfectly because yeah, totally. you shoot your musket, it takes a minute to reload it and you don't want to have to be doing the, the hand-to-hand stuff. So I'm glad I'm not alive in this time period. Oh yeah. It, it looks uh, <laughs> real brutal, but uh, to watch it, yeah, like it is very exciting because it, it does feel like everyone's kind of on the same level. Nobody has like a big gun who is just mowing everyone down like it, it's yeah. it's much more uh 
bravery and and like you have to be able to to fight for yourself and again this is more of the stuff i like from from black sails or these kind of pirate battles where they're they're up aboard the the enemy ship and they're going toe to toe one thing that always occurs to me when we have these sort of like close-up battles whether they're sort of medieval battles or ship battles how do you know who to kill? Like, I mean, like, you know, like there's fog and shit, smoke going everywhere. And like, I guess you're just hoping to be able to identify the uniforms well enough so that you know who you're stabbing. I would think there would be a lot of collateral damage in these fights. Friendly fire. Well, there is oh, one point yeah. where they, he tells them to tie a black strip to their arms so they can identify oh, yeah, each that's other. Right. But that wouldn't be enough for me, like with no. all the smoke and all that. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, that's enough to satisfy me in the context of the okay. movie. But but just putting myself in that situation, I'd be like, I would definitely shoot one of my own crewmates for sure, or stab them. At a certain point, it gets really into close quarters because they go below deck, and we sort of follow Aubrey for like a long time, just kind of plowing through people in one of the lower decks, and uh, it's tight quarters and it's pretty intense yeah i'm a little confused by this because it seems like they they like shoot their way through into the lower decks and then they it's maturin it's aubrey it's the cook it's the midshipman with one arm it's kind of like your backup crew of guys who go into to storm the boat this way because most of the guys go up top so yeah it's definitely very chaotic i still don't didn't fully process this fighting scene it's not like battle fatigue because it does kind of handle itself very quickly and it's all practical so it's not like i'm overwhelmed by like a million cgi ships flying around it's just there's quite a bit the scene goes on for for a while yeah if i was gonna maybe level a half-hearted criticism i'd say that the, maybe this could be done a little bit better so that you kind of had a better understanding of what's going on it's always sort of a you know, push and pull sort of situation with like these types of battle scenes, because on one hand, you want to create the, you know, uh, geography and have a good understanding of everything. But on the other hand, you want it to feel chaotic, because that's Mm -hmm. what these things presumably were really like. So, you know, it's a trade off. It's like you try to keep it not too chaotic that you can't follow it, but you also don't want it to be too slick and choreographed. So I I think they do a fine enough job. I think it's perfectly decent and an exciting conclusion. But, you know, Steven Spielberg, I bet, could do it better. The end result of this is that they win the fight. Many people on their side die. We get quite a few casualties. A couple of major characters get killed. One guy who's been pretty prominent gets shot in the head and... The friend of the one-armed midshipman, the older friend, dies um, very sadly. But Aubrey, he gets you know all the way into the stern, I believe, and he finds a group of men huddling over like a surgery table, and there's a dead man on the table, and the surgeon claims to be the surgeon. It's like this was the captain. You know, we surrender and he wanted me to give you this and he gives him the captain's sword. So, you know, Aubrey believes that the battle's over, they've won and they've killed the captain. I like the the jump scare that uh, happens when when uh, Russell Crowe is in the, the, the French captain's cabin. He's he's like looking through all the the supplies and 
a sailor jumps up and tries to jumps out of hiding and tries to stab him but it's, yeah yeah it's just just a little too short i feel like he kind of gets him with like the tip of the the blade but it's not enough to really do any sort of damage and of course in the, all the among all the debris there's a french horn so uh great uh, great joke there but uh <laughs> the like there's a bit of a long uh, kind of denouement like there's a, it's about like 10 minutes or so you kind of think it would end right at the end of this battle but i i do feel like it ties up the story very very well you know because it's going on this long that there must be some sort of twist for lack of a better word i wouldn't really say it's a twist it's more of just kind of like a little last little aha they give the uh asheron over to the um the james darcy character pullings they give it over to him they promote him to captain so he's going to get his own ship and they order him to like sail it uh, back to England? Is that what, what they're doing? Or They sail it to Chile, Valparaiso. Yeah, so I mean, we're just sort of wrapping it up here uh, with the characters. You know, we get this sort of last scene with um, Aubrey and Moderin, where they're getting ready to play music together. Aubrey's explaining to him what happened, and Moderin's like, the French surgeon died months ago. So obviously Aubrey realizes that the man that he thought was the surgeon that surrendered to him was actually the ship's captain. So they can't really in good conscience let the Asheron sail off without their accompaniment. Because he had told Paul Bettany that they would go back to the Galapagos so he could get his his um, samples back. But now he's going to break that promise again because he can't let the Asheron go with their captain still aboard. Even though, I mean, I don't know what the captain's going to really do. Is he going to lead a revolution on the ship or yeah, something? Yeah, he's going to lead, lead a mutiny. They were all the, the rest of the crew were still there. But at this point, Paul Bettany, he's disappointed, but he's more understanding of the situation. And there's a nice just little moment between them where it's sort of like... Well, yep, you know, we can't ignore duty or whatever. And then they just start playing a song together. And we get the sense that we will experience more adventures with these two gentlemen. Yeah, it's a flightless bird, so it'll always be on the Galapagos. That's right. Yeah, he wants the bird. And yeah, uh, Aubrey points out like, well, you said it was flightless, right? (laughs) So it's not going anywhere. It's a nice little scene that sets up the promise of a franchise, a franchise that I would gladly have enjoyed had they uh, made enough money to justify it. It sets us up for more adventures. I like to imagine like Cap- Master and Commander 2 starts with them. They're, they're tracking the Asheron down. They, they, they get it uh, back under control. Uh, Captain Pullings dies, sadly, but uh, then they go off to a new adventure. They go back to, to England. They fight in the Battle of Trafalgar, maybe. But uh, if only. Yeah, so sadly, um, this movie was not like a catastrophic failure. It cost $150 million, which for 2003 is a lot. And it ended up clearing 211 worldwide, but that's not a success. I mean, in the press, they kind of played it up that it wasn't that big of a financial failure, but it kind of is. I mean, with marketing, conventional wisdom is you need to double your budget plus a third to be in the clear um, because of, you know, uh, marketing and because of, you know, you don't make as much money in foreign territories and all that kind of thing. So 
this movie did not really make its money back. And obviously they didn't continue to make more. So it was not seen as financially viable. Um, Let me ask you this, Andrew. uh, Why do you think that was the case? Why do you think that it did not spawn a franchise? Well, we talked about Pirates of the Caribbean coming out in a similar time frame and that being a much more fun, old-timey boat movie. Yeah. So maybe people uh, watched that, enjoyed it, and then kind of saw that this was a bit more highbrow and and, and weren't, weren't into it. I mean, that's like my only real thinking is that like, because this presents itself as a bit more of like a, a thinking person's movie, there's nature is involved and there's we're not just going to war, we're kind of having this ethical debate of like war or the pursuit of science. And that's, that's actually entertained in this movie, whereas it would be something that would be totally not considered. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish this movie had done better. But uh, it, uh, you can point talk about the historical bits, maybe not being as as accurate as they should. But that's not driving anyone away. That's only for no. super nerds who are who know about this stuff. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think that um, for the time that it was released, I think you're landing upon something in the Pirates of the Caribbean comparison, just in the sense that, you know, there probably wasn't a whole lot of room in the public zeitgeist for sailing adventure movies. And that one just had the more popcorn enjoyability and a supernatural element and sort of fantastical element. But honestly, what I think it is, is that, you know, this movie was being sold on like Russell Crowe in a historical epic, right? And, you know, the movie that would draw the closest comparison to it at this time would have been Gladiator. And Gladiator sold a very specific type of experience, right? It's like Russell Crowe, tough guy. He's, you know, going to kill a bunch of people. It's going to be violent. It's going to maybe have a revenge element to it. And I just think that this movie probably confused people by not being the sort of violent, macho type of movie that they were hoping it was going to be or expecting it might be following Gladiator. I mean, I know that I found this movie to be a surprise. I found it to be a pleasant surprise, you know, not to again touch upon the name (laughs) of the ship. I loved it because I was like, oh, I was expecting Gladiator on the waves and I got a much more thoughtful and interesting, you know, movie and a much different type of a character from Russell Crowe. I mean, I was impressed by it. I was like, oh, this is much more layered and nuanced than I was expecting. But I think that, you know, Joe Lunchpail probably, you know, was like, I don't know. I mean, it's not Gladiator. I don't know if I want to watch this. And I mean, to Russell Crowe's credit as an actor, I think that he really was not interested in perpetuating whatever sort of like stereotype was going to evolve out of him as Gladiator. I mean, when Gladiator hit, it just completely changed the whole like trajectory of his career. I mean, he was almost a character actor. And then suddenly he was this like Mel Gibson level leading man. And I think he just to his credit, was never interested in that. I think he's like, no, I'm going to play 
parts that interest me. And I'm sure that, you know, from a marketing standpoint, when this movie got made and this movie was a passion project, it was not, yeah. you know, it was not, it was like the, the head of Fox or whatever. I think it was Tom Rothman who is a man of questionable taste in many ways. Like he's done some terrible things for cinema However, this was one of those things that it was a noble cause and he was a big fan of these books and everything. And he was the one that sort of shepherded this into being, you know, I just think that it was not what people were expecting or or not what the marketing was presenting it as being. And actually, when I was looking at the reviews, I I was sort of shocked that there's some bad reviews of this movie, which I I can't wrap my head around, but you know, like the San Francisco Chronicle didn't really like it. And you know, a lot of big publications were sort of lukewarm on it, which I found sort of shocking. And the cinema score was like a B, which is low. That's the, the audience recommendation for other audiences. Yes. Cinema score is ticket paying audience ratings. And like you have to have seen the movie to offer a rating. It's like they they're polls that are taken right outside the movie theaters. And like a B is actually considered to be kind of a poor score, even though, you know, as an academic grade, it would be considered to be decent. It's not in a cinema score grade. So that tells me that people were probably leaving the theater disappointed for whatever reason. I don't understand why, but I think it was just a matter of not getting what they thought they were going to get. And um, yeah, I think the word of mouth probably wasn't as good as it should have been as a result. And so, yeah, it just didn't really make uh, the kind of money it needed to make. Looking at this from like 2024 vision, the one thing I do kind of don't like about it is that it's very much about like how great the British Empire was and and these guys are our heroes. And that's something that like pirates stuff, pirate media has like turned on its head is the idea that the pirates are the bad guys when yeah. like, how I describe like pirates are kind of actually the good guys in some ways because the the crew has a say in what they're going to do and all of the gold and plunder is stolen from indigenous people anyway. And so like who who's doing worse, the people stealing the treasure or the people who are like brutally exploiting the indigenous population of the Americas to to get that treasure? Like... It, there's not really a good answer. The Pirates of the Caribbean movies, aren't the British usually? They're the bad guys. In Black Sails, the British are the bad guys. And yeah. I think that's kind of like how how history has, has kind of come to, or how we come to view it history now, especially post-2020. And a lot of people around the world, they're going to see a movie where the, the British are being heroized and be like, yeah, it's not for me. Well, yeah. And to that point, I don't think there would really be much of a future for this, for this book series to be like readapted or anything, you know, I mean, not even forget about, you know, making a sequel to this with Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe. I'm like, I don't even think it would be probably a wise idea to do like a Netflix master and commander tv show streaming show because of exactly what you're saying it's just not a popular idea in our culture right now that there was any upside to british colonialism or exceptionalism i think all societies have had terrible things that they've done so i don't know where that leaves the um genre of historical fiction. I mean, um, even like something recently like um, The Woman King, there were 
facets to that story that came to light later on that, you know, basically the tribe that they were, you know, making the heroes of that movie actually sold their own people into slavery. History is ugly, pretty much, no matter how you look at it. So I think it's tough at this point, certainly to launch, I think, a historical fiction series. You'd have to you have to do it the black sales way by making the pirates, the heroes, because you know, you can't really side with, I don't know who you side with. Like you could maybe side with uh, like Paul Bettany, the naturalist and like his pursuit of new critters. But uh, I mean, even then, like he, like, why is he there? Cause he's on a warship. Why is the warship there? So I don't know. I hope that there are more historical shows being made just because i i enjoy them but i also think that like yeah like it's difficult to to do it in a way that's not like very uh like upsetting for lots of people i guess i know russell crowe at one point <laughs> i think back in like 2010 so we're you know we're already 14 years away from from this but he encouraged people to you know write to fox and try to get them to make a sequel and stuff like that he was very fond of the movie and was willing to come back and stuff i saw that like there was talk of a prequel being started in like 2021 but nothing since then so i don't know if that's dead in the water but uh this movie had a, a resurgence in the pandemic of of guys like me having nothing to watch at home and remembering this movie and seeing it on Disney plus or whatever and, and checking it out and enjoying it. So maybe, maybe there will be another renaissance for this kind of thing later. I don't know. Do you remember uh, in 2021 when there was a viral tweet about master and commander? No. So some Twitter jokester tweeted about how like, Oh, this movie, I, I watch it to fall asleep. And, and Russell Crowe tweeted back at them because this person mentioned Russell Crowe in their tweet. And uh, I just want to share Russell Crowe's tweet here. He says, that's the problem with kids these days. No focus. <laughs> Peter Weir's film is brilliant. An exacting, detail-oriented, epic tale of fidelity to empire and service, regardless of the cost. Incredible cinematography by Russell Boyd and a majestic soundtrack. Definitely an adult's movie. So I think that kind of encapsulates why the movie failed a bit. <laughs> yeah, it, is, totally. it is a bit of a, a demanding watch, and it's all about how great the Empire is and all that. But uh, no, I really appreciate Russell Crowe for sticking up for this movie. And I know when, when, that, uh, when that fool made that tweet, they didn't realize they were calling uh, Aubrey's Navy to come and ratio them real bad to tell them how <laughs> wrong they were. Because, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, with, uh, I'm with Russell Crowe. I think this is a, a gem. It's, uh, it's brilliant. It's, uh, it's too bad there weren't more. And if you haven't seen this movie for whatever reason, and you're listening to this podcast, regardless of spoilers, definitely see this movie. It is it is a great movie. And I do think that it is only garnered more appreciation over time, as you've already sort of mentioned. Um, it's often cited as, for whatever reason, very popular with millennials. Mm-hmm. Um I remember when it came out, you know, I was like online and spending online in like movie forums and stuff like that. I remember, you know, people who were a few years younger than me really, really loved this movie. And like people were saying, it's, it's this movie's so much better than Gladiator. Why don't people, it, I mean, it was just drawing comparisons to Gladiator. But anyways, yeah, it, for whatever reason, it really uh, struck a chord with millennials. Yep. That, that's, that's me basically. Like, uh, 
I prove your point right there. All right. Well, I'm going to go disguise myself as a whaler and um, perform surgery on myself and catalog a new species of beetle. We don't have time for your damned hobbies, sir. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. (laughs) 